Hey, and welcome back to the history of China. The website is running, and last episode's post is up. And yeah, there'll be a post for this one too. We're back on schedule. I figured it out. But really though, in all seriousness, I just wanted to say thank you. No, not because it was just Thanksgiving and I'm trying to be cliche, but no, really, to everyone that listens, that subscribes, that donates, everyone. I was really afraid to check my analytics pages for this podcast because I have been posting so infrequently. Sort of the same fear of, you know, checking the bank account after a bender. But to my surprise, and honestly, so amazingly, but the show is growing, and not just growing, but at record pace. So thank you, everyone, really. And as always, rate the show five stars if you can, subscribe if you haven't, and send me emails. I really do love talking to you guys. And thank you to Kate for the donation this week. But ah, no need for a where were we. This episode is going to be different. It's going in a different direction. And I did promise this last week. In the main thread, we are with Emperor Ai now. And the Western Han Dynasty is about to have some major issues. So, let's do a Han check-in. Things have been pretty good. But let's talk about money, life, conspiracies. But yeah, you know, yeah, let's start with the conspiracies. Let's just jump right into it. So, without further ado... The History of China, Episode 43, Han Dynasty Check-In. I mentioned last week that during the last run of episodes, history was occurring outside of our lens. In the sense that history was occurring, of course, everywhere at all times, but a lot of really well-known history was occurring outside of China. Rome's Republic fell. Figures like Octavian, Julius Caesar, and Mark Antony dominated the era, and especially dominated our mindset, at least in the West, of that era's history. Heck, even the first triumvirate happened. A lot happened. Look, I know I split the room with my audience when I bring up Rome. I am not trivializing Chinese history by comparing it to Rome. Heck, part of the point of this show is to trivialize Roman history and compare it to China. Both are wonderful civilizations and infinitely unique and interesting, but as you know from episode one, Chinese history is virtually unknown in the Western world. Even though it is honestly, well, you know, from my perspective, bigger better, and more interesting than Roman history. Hey, this is a podcast, though, not an official worldview for everybody. But that's my perspective. We talk about the Chinese history because, well, that's what the show's about. But I like to step back and look at the world as a whole, to some degree. But last episode, I talked about how Caesar and Emperor Yuan both lived and died without having the slightest idea of each other's existences. Heck, they lived and died without knowing each other's whole civilizations existed. We live in a world now where good ideas are immediately available across the world. A Korean company invents a new phone feature through Samsung, and then in a month, American-owned Apple is out there trying to better it. 
vaccines, religion, sports, politics, news, culture, anything. It's all instantly available to everybody globally. And I know we're used to it. We know how the internet works and I'm not a boomer. No, I know. But realizing that both of the two biggest and greatest civilizations of that era were built entirely in their own vacuums at the exact same time, well, that provides a wonderful case study. You have the beginning of the Roman Empire and the Han Dynasty happening at the exact same time. The fact that two effective systems of massive governance had so many similarities at all says something about Darwinian's theories. But it also shows us just really a wonderful comparison. The two cultures would be connected by trade eventually, to some level, and would have extremely limited contact later in the Han Dynasty. And don't worry, we will get into that. But that is a story for a later date. They had not at this point connected at all. Yet. Or did they? This is the conspiracy time. This is not a crackpot theory from yours truly. This has actually been a debated theory amongst actual professional historians. And there are people out there that have gone and done actual digs and have done DNA testing. So look, is it true? Before I start on this little tangent, well, honestly, probably not. But the truth is almost as interesting as the theory itself, and I want to talk about it now because this is a theory that you might see on YouTube or on Reddit. So I thought, you know what, for entertainment's sake, but also to educate you on something you may run into later, let's discuss it. In 53 BC, a Roman army marched into Parthia. Parthia is an empire we haven't really discussed yet. But we will, don't worry. Long story short, Parthia laid in between Rome and China. It was in the Middle East and where Persia is. And Parthia and Rome went at it like the Italians and the Austrians at the Isonzo River. That's a World War I joke. Point is, they went at it forever. Roman Parthia, back and forth, back and forth. And in 53 BC, one of the Roman triumvirates the richest man in Rome, Crassus, wanted military glory. Julius Caesar was getting it, and Pompey already clearly had it. And how better to get it than knocking out Rome's most equal adversary? But in 53 BC, and pardon my butchering of a pronunciation, but at the Battle of Cary, Crassus not only lost the battle, yeah, he loses, he not only lost an untold amount of troops killed or taken prisoner, remember prisoner, by the way, but he himself lost his life. Boom. Disaster. Now jump back to our universe here in ancient Han Dynasty in the year 36 BC, just under two decades later. The Han Dynasty at this point are facing off against the dwindling Xiongnu at the Battle of Jur-Jur. Now, we actually touched on this battle briefly, and long story short, it was another swift and decisive victory for the Han as the Xiongnu continued to be less and less of a legitimate threat. 
but something unusual was described about this battle in the Han histories. Oh man, here we go. The Xiongnu had their regular forces. Forces that the Han Dynasty had been dealing with seemingly annually for hundreds of years. So they recognize what a real Xiongnu fighter looks like. But then comes this blurb from Chinese historian Ban Gu. B-A-N-G-U. And this blurb is as such. He describes that with the regular Xiongnu forces. Forces that, yeah, well, that's the Xiongnu. They were about, quote, a hundred men, end quote, who fought in a so-called, quote, fish-scale formation, end quote. And they were in this formation to defend Jurger's fortress against the Han Dynasty. What the heck is that? Who in the world were these people in a fish-scale formation? They've never seen them before. The Han Dynasty had never seen Xiongnu forces at all like this. And the historian Homer H. Dubbs speculated in the year 1941. That, if you haven't put this together, by the way, the theory is that Roman prisoners of war from that battle in 53 BC were taken prisoners by the Parthians, maybe traded up or had some connection with the Xiongnu who bordered the Parthians on the other end, and then ended up clashing with the Han Dynasty. The theory is, troops come from Rome to Parthia, lose, are captured, are dealt around, and end up at the easternmost end of the Parthian Empire, maybe even a little farther away, well, no, definitely a little bit farther away, and end up fighting the Han Chinese. The fish scale formation? Well, Dubs claimed that this might have been the Roman Testudo formation, and that these men who were captured by the Chinese not only end up losing this battle, so they're captured again. God, yeah, if these were Romans, these were the worst Roman soldiers. What an awful record. But they ended up finding a place to settle down. They founded a village called Li Qian. And they think that this, and no, the theory gets a little weird, but they think that Li Qian, L-I-Q-I-A-N, or spelled differently, L-I-C-H-I-E-N, possibly is a weird mixing, bad translation, or really just a homophone of the word legio. Legio, I don't speak Latin. It's a far theory. It's stretching. And people have made attempts to promote this weird Roman-Chinese Han Dynasty connection for tourist stakes, because it's wild. But the theory that these two actually fought has actually been not debunked, but really has not been picked up amongst a lot of historians. Because look, it's clearly highly speculative. And it reaches a lot of conclusions without a lot of hard evidence. Oh, well, Li Qian could possibly mean Legio. Yeah, sh- sure. It could. But thankfully, we have things today that Dubs didn't have back in 1941 when he made this theory up. We understand there's an interesting thing here in the sources. From the Chinese. Contemporary, by the way, to the time. But DNA testing in 2005 confirmed there was some Indo-European ancestry of a few of the inhabitants of modern Li Qian, 
the village that the Romans, allegedly according to this theory, were part of founding. But this, that doesn't mean that it was Roman legionaries. This could be explained by tons of different things. There were tons of more things that happened in this region since this battle. It could be trans-ethnic marriages with other people who lived in the steppe. It could have been people from later. It could have just been the Wusun people themselves. And look, they ended up doing a much deeper dive into the DNA here. Because obviously, we, let's put this theory to bed. And they showed that of 200 male residents living in the village of Li Tian in 2007, showed a much closer genetic relation to the Han Chinese population and a huge deviation from the Western European gene pool. Thus, these people were not in any way from Roman origin. As cool as it is, it's not really backed up by the DNA evidence. And the theory, of course, also lacks any real archaeological evidence of a Roman presence at all. Yeah, you might say these were just legionaries, but no. No, there's more. Because legionaries, if you don't know, were, well, half soldier, half engineer. They built their forts every night, and you would have assumed that at some level they would have built something or said anything to anyone, but no. Though there is more to the theory. Because what the heck is the fish scale formation? What in the world is that? So, a new hypothesis came out after the DNA in 2007, because in 2011, Dr. Christopher Anthony Matthew from the Australian Catholic University suggested that, yeah, these are strange warriors, but they weren't Roman legionaries. Come on. No. But hoplites from the kingdom of Fergana, which was one of the successor states of Alexander the Great's empire. Because when Alexander dies, the empire is broken up amongst his generals, and a lot of them still survived for a good amount of time. And that would make a lot more sense. Because they would be within the purview of the Parthians. Not some crazy Roman prisoner of war exchange from hell. And look, this theory is wild. We can never know for sure what happened or what in the world the fish scale formation was. They were clearly different and weren't seen again. But I wanted to treat you guys to one of the more fun and wild things I've seen about this dynasty. Heck, look, it beats a court drama continuously. Am I right? Come on, I'm right. Does this podcast, though, endorse the Roman theory? No, it doesn't. Does it want to? Yeah, of course it does. I'm including this story not to promote some fringe opinion that I totally believe, but to really, again, entertain some really interesting ideas, as well as showing how distant yet close these two civilizations were. What is now the speed of a click or the time of a flight was infinitely far for people back then. And of course, this brings up the theory that every single middle schooler thinks, who would have won in a set battle? Look, that's just a fun question. But let me know in the comments or email me what you think. A full Roman army or a full Han Dynasty army? You know what I'll say. I'll give you a hint. A full Han army was multitudes bigger, just saying, and cross better cavalry, more men... 
better tech. Yeah, you know my vote. But I look forward to hearing your guys' opinions. Anyway, enough conspiracy theories. Let's talk about something a lot more set in stone. Well, how did the money work? What was life like? And yeah, I know, this is not the time for Buddhism. But that is coming. That is coming, but we're not there yet. I might have jumped the gun a little bit last time when I first mentioned it because we got really tied down in some court dramas here. But what was it like for people outside of this elitist court drama? I got us all sucked into. And because look, yeah, ever since I started my job, one thing has been on my mind more than usual. Money. I can't believe I haven't gotten to this. But what in the world was the monetary situation like in the Han Dynasty? How have I not gone over this yet? That's on me. But better late than never. Our story does start, actually, with the first emperor of the Western Han Dynasty, our good old friend Emperor Gao. Because he banned government minting and in turn legalized private mints. Why? Well, at the time of his ascension, the government was not actually making many coins. It was the end of a brutal yet quick dynasty, the Qin, that just fell itself to civil war. So there was going to be an obvious shortage of coins that in turn impeded trade and, oh god, you can imagine the problems. But the private mints that Emperor Gao legalized were not just all out there making their own currencies willy-nilly. No, 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 no. The Han under Emperor Gao simply adopted the Qin Dynasty's standard bronze coin, as we've mentioned this before, the Banliang, which is about 12 joule, or a half ounce. And look, this coin of the Qin Dynasty is really heavy. And obviously, if you have a really heavy, really valuable coin, you can't really cut it up. You can't dish it out in small change. It's Look, it's unsuitable for any use across the dynasty. So during Emperor Gao's reign, there was an increased demand for lighter coins. I mean, coins that people can just buy things with. Small things. And so private mints ended up producing a large quantity of lighter coins that weighed 0.2 to 1.5 grams as opposed to 8 grams of the original Banliang. Okay, so you have the heavy coin, which is 12 joule unit of measurement, which is 8 grams, and now you have a lighter coin that is 0.2 to 1.5 grams. You get the picture. Two different coins. But confusingly, I know, it has to be confusing, obviously, those lighter coins, the ones that are 1.5 to 0.2 grams as opposed to 8, well, they retained the conventional Banliang inscription. So they looked just like the big ones, making their face value much greater than their literal value in, well, metal. It wasn't worth as much, but it looked like it was. It's confusing. Imagine having two quarters, and one is sterling silver, and one is nickel. You can imagine how confusing that would get. Though I will say, the merchants and tradesmen were not idiots. We have tons of writing that show that they would, of course, never accept these lighter coins at the face value that they looked like. Look, these were professionals. They weren't going to take a 
<laughs> I mean, a coin that was seven grams lighter and take it at the same value just because it looked the same. But look, this is where a dynasty-wide pendulum is going to start. One emperor, like Emperor Gao, for example, would privatize the mint. But then another leader would then just reinstate the imperial mint after the palace lost control over the monetary system. Hmm. What do I mean? Well, in 186 BC, Empress Liu, oh yeah, that Empress Liu, the horror show, reinstated the imperial mint with hopes of gaining much more control over the monetary system. Why did she do that? Well, probably a mix of selfish reasons for herself and also because the centralized government was now able to handle itself a little better, so why not give it a spin? And the first coin brought out by the government was a Banliang coin weighing 8 Zhu. So the original coin, as you remember, from the Qin dynasty that Emperor Gao of Han sort of co-opted, that was 12 Zhu. They bring in a slightly less valuable but still pretty large coin. And then in 182 BC, just four years later, they then brought out a new coin called the Wu Fen, which only weighed 2.4 Zhu. That's Z-H-U, by the way. And that began to circulate. Anyone out there who is a finance whiz or loves econ will realize that there's about to be a demonetization of the 186 BC eight Jew coins that Empress Liu brought out. Because this allowed bronze to be restruck into a much larger nominal stock of money. And this leads to something we are dealing with today, in our own world, inflation. We might have a much different life than the Han Dynasty, but some things, well, some things never change. In response to the fact that inflation was beginning to be a problem, Emperor Wen of Han then increased the metallic content of the Banliang to four Zhu and once again allowed private mints to exist and gave them the freedom to make their coins as long as they complied with the standard measurements. And they only were producing bronze coins by 175 BC. I, in, again, this is really confusing. They start with a big coin, but then they make the big coin be made by the privatizements, and then they make a smaller coin, but then a slightly larger coin is then brought out, but smaller than the original from a government mint. Again, I'm not even going to try to explain it, but if you're following along, good for you. Even I'm a little confused. But it's a pendulum. It's going to keep swaying back and forth, and back and forth, and back and forth, because boom, in 144 BC, Emperor Jing of Han ended privatized minting, and, yep, you guessed it, reinstituted a government monopoly on minting coins. And he went a little step farther. Not only did he get rid of the privatizements, he made private coining illegal to a point where if you got caught and convicted, you would face the death penalty. Which sounds really strict, but you, know, you guys know a lot of things got you the death penalty. But nonetheless, no one said following the rules in the Han Dynasty was easy. The rules change pretty fast. But the problem that we encountered earlier, the difference between the face value and intrinsic value of the coins during the Han, led to another thing. Rampant counterfeiting. Yeah, I know. 
Because the Banyang was always the Banyang. It looked the same, had the same inscriptions. But the Han Dynasty government was perpetually changing what that coin was actually worth literally in metal. Like how heavy it was. So with a wide array of different coins that all look the exact same but have different value, well, counterfeiting was really easy. But again, the Han Dynasty was not stupid. People began to discover quick ways of deciding which ones had the best value, what was the true value of every Banliang coin, and they would adjust the value to reflect their actual weight. Because again, they look the same. Imagine if you had two quarters. They're both worth 25 cents. But imagine if one is made out of 25 cents of nickel and the other one is made out of a dollar of silver. They're the same coin, but they're not worth the same in intrinsic value. So, what did this mean? Well, people would stop pretending that these fake coins were the same value as the original ones, the 12 Jew coin. And this is really confusing. They have this standardized coin but it is anything but standardized. But again, the Han Dynasty was not stupid. And I know, if you guys are bored with money, don't worry. We're still got a little bit left. But in 120 BC, eventually, a new bronze coin, the three Jew cash coin, replaced the old four Jew Banliang coin. And this is where finally an improvement is made. Because this new cash coin, it was three Jew well, its face value, the value that it was stated as, was actually made finally equal to its literal value. Wow. Look, we might say, oh, how could they never do that? Well, imagine minting your own coins yourself. Good luck. But they fixed it, and in 119 BC, we're catching up to where we are now, Emperor Wu introduced the Wu Zhu, which literally means Wu, five, Zhu. So... It was a Wuju bronze coin. And it was this coin that really stuck. The Han Dynasty goes back and forth, trying to figure out the Banyang. It's changing its weight, but it's not changing the inscription. It's doing all these weird things. And finally comes the Wuju. And the reason I'm sticking to this one coin is not because I think it looks cool or I love Emperor Wu, which I do. But this was because this is the coin that stuck. Because this coin would be used in the way its measurements were calculated and the way it was made. And really its circulation would be used until the 7th century AD. So yeah, remember that one. The Wu Zhu. Five Zhu. But, as you know, a pendulum is a pendulum. And it's going to swing back. Because at first, look, the Wuju is here to stay. I've already spoiled that. But at first, the Wuju was minted by both the Han Dynasty imperial government and by local municipalities. But in 113 BC, the pendulum finally swung and it stuck and became the sole responsibility of the imperial mint. What exactly was the real reason behind having privatizements and the imperial mint? In the very onset with Emperor Gao, it made sense. There were a lot of things to do for a new dynasty, and, well, making new coins is kind of a hard thing to do. So you spread it out, privatize it, let people go after it, and become experts in it. 
Very free market, laissez-faire. I mean, laissez-faire to an extent, there were obviously standards. But again, we know that the pendulum swung back and forth, back and forth. And it was in 81 BC when the debate over privatized and imperial coinage finally reemerged. But this time, it was almost a spiritual debate. Because 60 Confucian scholars from across the Han Dynasty put together an entire case for the fact that, well, monetary freedom, i.e. private mints, well, that's the best way to go about things. You want to sound coinage? Boom. That's what you do. Monetary freedom. But the argument against private coinage, well, as one official literally stated in the Han Dynasty, quote, if the currency system is unified under the emperor's control, the people will not serve two masters, the two being the state and the market. If coin issues from the ruler, the people will have no doubts about whether it's genuine or not, end quote. As grand and regal as that sounds, the Confucians did not agree to that counterpoint. They were more mm, libertarian about the whole thing and pointed out that government mint monopolies prevented free competition. And thus, it actually allows for more debasement of the currency for personal gain in the imperial dynasty. Okay, rewind here. They're essentially saying, the Confucian scholars in around 81 BC, were arguing that, look, we get it. There's some big hoity-toity reason why the emperor should be the one giving out coins. Yeah, cool. But if you actually want a non-debased currency, you're going to need the private mints because the free competition would allow, well, better coins, more consistent coins. And it wouldn't allow some power-hungry official to just start debasing currency for personal gain. But alas, the greed and power-hungry nature of self-serving courts, well, it finally went out, and the government would begin to more consistently hold its monopoly over coinage. That makes me think, though. I know, it got kind of deep with money. But what can money buy? Well, homes. We haven't talked a lot about homes. But why are there so little, if any, Han buildings? I can think of a lot of Roman buildings from this era. Why are there less Han Dynasty ones? For one, China didn't just stop existing as a society. You know, Earth was never allowed to just cover the properties for us to find and dig up later. No. Houses and whatnot were knocked down or were destroyed in war or were just destroyed for a, a lot of other reasons. But the main reason we don't have a lot of Han archaeological findings in terms of literal structures is that in this era, Timber was the main building material for virtually all structures. We know from pictures and loose descriptions that the courtyard style home, so a home that you enter through and there's a courtyard in the middle surrounded essentially, essentially like a donut by the living quarters, was the most, let's just say, in vogue. Bad, but you get the picture. But again, timber decays. And so, by the time we reach present day, we're kind of left guessing to a degree. Yes, stone battlements and pillars and rammed earthworks and even some wood structures. Well, those are all still available, to an extent. But really, 
the Han Dynasty's building structures and the way they lived is more or less lost. Not entirely. We have descriptions. We have artwork. But it's hard to go off of. We can't say, ah, this is for sure how it was done. And that kind of makes a single tear roll down my cheek. Well, about the houses. What in the world were they using to build stuff? So they have these homes that we've lost. How are they building them? We know that the Han Dynasty were really technologically advanced. And, well... Writing about scientific endeavors was often seen to be beneath that of the Confucian scholars, who in turn were the ones that wrote most of the history we have today. God dang it. They just didn't want to write about it. We know that the Han came up with a belt drive, water wheels, and used calipers, which are used for really specific measurements in terms of engineering and building. And so to elaborate on the fact that scholars who wrote logs and the histories didn't care at all, calipers were mentioned pretty much zero times anywhere in Han literature. And I mean it, literally not mentioned. But how do we know about them? Well, because we've been able to dig up pairs of calipers with the literal date they were made engraved on them. And yes, they were made in the Han. And there's a lot of other things that we know about the Han Dynasty that we've picked up on in different episodes. It was an exceedingly complex government structure with people that were in administrative positions for all sorts of different things. Like the Mins, for example. That was a whole apparatus surrounding that one issue. There were local officials. There was a pyramid. I mean, it was just the fact that you can even people and dynasty spanning that large of territory and population to function is incredible. All of these fantastic inventions, amazing. Dealing with monetary policy, and as much as it sounds so simple today, most of us listening to this, and I mean this including myself, do not understand the first thing about monetary policy. It's incredible. And what's even cooler is the fact that they deal with problems that other civilizations deal with. To wrap this all up. The Romans dealt with it. The Greeks dealt with it. The Persians dealt with it. Everyone's dealt with it. And yet, in their own little vacuums, human civilization seems to always find a way. Anyway, that is enough for today. Boring money talk, a conspiracy theory, and talking about how, well, sorry, not a lot of things exist anymore in terms of structures. Oh, and they didn't like writing about science, even though they were doing it. Ah, what I would do sometimes for a time machine. Anyway, go check out the website for this episode, and really, rate the show five stars and subscribe, because, again, it seems like nothing to you, but it really does mean a lot to me. Anyway, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you all next time on the History of China.